If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to open with me to the book of Romans. Actually, you know, I've got to give you some places to go first. Uh, Proverbs 1, find that. Put a bookmark there. Probably a bookmark in front of you somewhere on the pew if somebody hasn't already scarfed those up. There's somewhere, somewhere close by, there's some bookmarks. Once you find Proverbs 1, I'll run to the other side and find 2 Peter chapter 2. And then lastly, find your way to Romans chapter 1, and that's where we will begin this morning. Glasses are this morning will be short for sure. I'm excited some of you guys are finally hitting 40. You're gonna know what it's like. I'll look out there and I'll see glasses hanging off everybody's noses pretty soon. Alright, Romans chapter one. I'm going to begin reading in verse 21, so let me invite you to stand with me as I read, and then we will turn to the Lord in prayer. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of the God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, Murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossipers, slanderers, haters of God. Insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the divine decree of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them as well. Let's pray. Father, we again praise you, and I'm so thankful for the prayers of our men every Sunday morning, the quiet that fills the room, and the hush that falls over our souls as we hear them call out to you on our behalf. And Father, I'm so thankful as they are for our time together. Father, you are a wonderful and blessed God. Father, you have given us things that are absolutely indescribable and immeasurable, and we praise you for them. But above all, we praise you for your Son, your only Son, the one who has been crowned King and Lord over all, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we're so thankful for the humility that he displayed and his willingness to put on flesh, and dwell among us 
and then to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins and our rebellion. And then in power, Father, you have raised him again. And we praise you for that, and we will praise you for that for all of eternity. And Father, thank you that through faith and faith alone, in Christ and Christ alone, we are made right with you. Father, thank you for your spirit that you've given us. And we pray even now, Father, that the spirit of God would form my thoughts and my words and make sense of them and empower them to pierce all of our hearts. And then, God, we ask that you'd give us a heart to hear and to believe. So help us now as we come before your word, Father. Open up our lives like a book. Place us before mirrors that we can see. And help us to repent and believe in what we find. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Last two weeks, we have been in the turbulent waters of discussing the wrath of God. And this week, I want to move us out of that grave reality, of that fact that we all suppress the truth of God and we are in desperate need of the grace of God through the gospel. Every single one of us. But I want to bring you to the grave reality that we have before God to be faithful to Him by obeying His Word in the days that we find ourselves. In the midst of a nation as well as a world that descends down in darkness, we have to be the children of God and cling to the truth of God and be a light. Now, I'll offer you a disclaimer this morning. You know that I don't typically talk about countries and cultures. I'd rather speak to the individual because here's the problem with those who stand behind the pulpit and, and speak about the nations to the loud, resounding amens all over the building. Here's the problem with that. You can hide when that happens. You can say in regard to the rest of the world, I can't believe how ungodly and wicked we or they rather are. I'm not like that. And what you wind up doing is committing the error that we'll find in Romans chapter 2. That is precisely the subject that Paul is about to take up. So I don't ever speak to the nations in the country because I'm more concerned for you. And so I want to talk to you and allow you to deal with your sin. So this morning I am going to take you out of the crosshairs for just a second and, and bring you to the subject of day. If you'll notice verse 21, Paul is addressing the church at Rome or Christians at Rome. And in verse 21 he says, For even though they... And so that's where I'm going to talk this morning. I think our time will be best served if I just speak about they, so you can understand what's going on. Now, we live in a country and a culture that has long since abandoned God. And I, that's painfully obvious, I realize. Even to someone who's been barely paying attention at all, it's painfully obvious of what we have done as a nation. And you don't ever hear me say this, but I'll admit there's some truth to this. There is some truth to the fact that the beginning of our country, it was, had a very thorough God consciousness in it. Even though most of our beginnings is romanticized and glamorized way beyond what it actually was, there is some truth to that. We did arguably have the best beginnings of any nation or any country of people that have ever had. But here's where people make the mistake. They think that our greatness was due to the fact that we were the land of the free. And so they attribute our greatness and our success and the blessings that we have received because of the fact that we were the land of the freedom. But it was not there. It was our willingness to submit to and worship the God who created the heavens and the earth. That's why we were great we recognize the God of the Bible and in so doing enjoyed the blessings of God. However, since the beginning, which by the way, let me stay with the beginning just a little bit. I talked just a couple of weeks ago about 
the Great Awakening, which was in the 1700s, early 1700s. In fact, I read an excerpt from a sermon that was preached by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners as the Hands of an Angry God. That was the type of preaching that was going on before we became a country. George Whitfield was our guy. And he preached the truth in all of its glory. And it was out of that preaching that God prepared a land before he brought us into being a nation. It's really quite remarkable. I don't know that that's ever happened in the history of man. That the gospel was proclaimed in this man in a very great way before we became a nation. But it wasn't very long at all when after that we began the continual slide away from God to the point to where we have long ago abandoned God altogether. Now we could go through a laundry list, a long number of things and of ways that we offend God today. But I'm not going to do that. We all know what they are, but I do want to bring up two and not go through a long list. The number one that I'll bring up in the way that it's clear that we've abandoned God is the one that's most mentioned from the pulpit. And that's the issue of prayer in schools. And I'll tell you in just a moment why I've never said anything about that from this pulpit. But that's what is mostly talked about in the church today, that God has been taken out of schools, prayer has been taken out of schools, and those sort of things. And they're absolutely true, but... Here's my beef. Prayer was gone from the home, especially prayer led by the fathers, a long time before it ever left the school. And so I have a hard time pointing fingers and complaining about the schoolhouse because I'm, I'm way more concerned about your house. And so that's the reason that I've never mentioned that, but it is true. That is a, a way in which we've left God behind. Now, if you know me, you know I'm going to say something about creation, so here you go. It is the greatest move that we've ever made as a people in the abandonment of God when we set down the doctrine of creation. You know when that happened, when that began to take place? That was the early 1800s. So if we were formed around 1776, you've got to realize we weren't 30 or 40 years old until Satan made his greatest push in causing us to, to reconsider the doctrine of creation. And so when you follow Romans, you understand that God has chosen to reveal Himself to the hearts of every man in order that they might be without excuse before God. And He did that through what has been made through creation. So in order to remove that God awareness that we all have and the conviction that so quickly follows, Satan began to work in our way and our lives to cause us to begin to doubt the original and initial doctrine that God is the creator of the heavens and earth and therefore He is Lord over all. And so now we live among those who have refused God to worship due Him. We have refused God the thanks that He deserves. And we have replaced the God who is written on each and every heart with idols. That's where we are. In other words, we have taken everything that God has done and, and turned it upside down. And so God has responded in kind and He has turned our world upside down. And we have become more degraded morally and more depraved mentally than ever before. We are altogether a foolish and senseless society. Now, we find ourselves living in such a culture. We find ourselves living in a place that has abandoned God. But let me give you a reality that's much worse than that. We live in a culture that God has abandoned. And that's a much more terrifying prospect. Now certainly I realize that the unmitigated wrath has yet to be poured out upon us. God has not consumed us, which means there's still a measure of the kindness and grace of God among us. Yeah? How many times have I taken to Exodus 34? God is patient and kind, willing to forgive. I mean, that is our God. In fact, you're in Romans. Look at chapter 2, verse 4, where God says in Romans 2, 4, do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness, His tolerance, His patience, 
not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. We still see that. And every day we wake up and we look out our windows and we don't see smoke rising up out of this nation. We ought to praise God for His patience. Because He's still exercising His patience. But we have to realize that there is a time when patience stops and His wrath is poured out in a much fuller measure. Last two weeks have taken you to Jonah and Nahum, right? Jonah, the Ninevites, experiencing the grace of God. Well, just one book over, you get to Nahum, and you see the same group of people experiencing the wrath of God. It was a season of grace, and then there was a season of wrath. All kinds of Old Testament pictures. Sodom and Gomorrah is God's chosen picture that stands throughout all time of His wrath that will be poured out on godless and wicked nations and peoples. And to be specific, the sin that's mentioned in Sodom and Gomorrah, by the way, is what is it? Homosexuality. That's the sin that was brought to the front before fire fell down. Great many other nations. You think about the Egyptians, the ten plagues of God's wrath that they endured until He drowned them in the sea. God tells His children once He brings them out, and He says, I will go before you into the land of... The Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, I will completely destroy them. And so when you think about that, they were enjoying a season of grace, but God had also marked a day, and it, by the way, was not the day of the return of Christ. God had marked a day when He said, there's coming a day where I will destroy all of those peoples. And He was faithful in doing that. Now, which brings me to a really great question. In fact, two questions that I was asked this week. Can judgment fall on us in a great measure before the return of Christ? Because when we think about the wrath of God, we think about that great day. So can we experience a great day of wrath before the great day? Well, when you consider all the Old Testament types, and when you think about the rising and the falling of nations since Christ, and I'll give you an example, Rome. Rome came about after Christ, or shortly before Christ, it began to be formed and they had their first Caesar, Julius Caesar, and they were existing in great power during the days of Christ, and they continued in years beyond Christ, and now there is so much ink that has been spilt in books trying to explain the fall of Rome. In fact, I read one book this week that attributed the fall of Rome to Christianity, believe it or not. Because they were pagan idol worshippers who were polytheistic, they had gods everywhere. And these Christians came on the scene and began preaching one God and one truth and His Son Jesus Christ. And it just messed up the whole nation. It caused the fall of the nation. But that's not what caused the fall of that nation. But when you begin to look at those cities, you understand that all that took place and Jesus has not come back yet. And so it's certainly within the willingness of God to pour out His wrath on a people and consume them in as a whole before the great day of wrath. So I'm absolutely convinced that our Lord will come any day now, but you have to realize I am equally convinced that I could turn on the news in the morning and see that our nation has come to an end. Because our character and our godlessness and our wickedness is well within comparison the things that we find throughout the rest of history. Which brings me to another great question that I was asked this week. Were there Christians in Nineveh that God rescued? To which I added, and if so, did they experience the wrath of God? You know, we, Jonah, grace, gospel preached, which was basically repent or die. Nahum, a hundred years later, he wiped them out. But we know the character of God. We know how God works. We, we know these passages about every tongue and tribe and nation will be gathered at the throne. And so if I follow the pattern of Scripture and I understand the character of God, you do realize there's probably one family that's going to be at the foot of the throne that's a Ninevite. That heard the Gospel that remained faithful to the gospel and granddad told his son and son told his grandson and they held fast to the gospel. 
So I'm, I'm well convinced that we'll meet at Nineveh there, right? But here's the question, did that poor family experience the wrath of God? And the answer to that question is yes and no. Yes, they did experience the wrath of God if you understand the wrath of God because the wrath of God continually being poured out is seen in the wickedness and the degradation, if you will, the sliding off the hill of the peoples. That is the measure of the wrath of God. In fact, when you turn to 2 Peter, it talks about Lot. You remember Lot was in Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is what it says about Lot as he lived in that city. It says, That righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. That's the daily wrath that he endured. And that's the daily wrath that you and I endure as we live in this country. We are tormented. We are tormented by lawlessness and godlessness. But did they experience that final day of wrath when God says, Okay, Nineveh, I'm done. No. No, they don't. I can't find a place in Scripture where his children experience that ultimate and final wrath. So what happened to that family? Well, if there was a family, God would have moved them. God would have cared for them. Not that final judgment that was poured out. That's just what I see from the pattern of Scripture. But I do want to take you this morning with all that now as laid as a foundation. I do want to take you to the nuts and bolts of judgment and wrath. And how all of that works. You see, God does not sit idly by as He is denied the worship and praise that He deserves. And we were created for the purpose of the worship and praise of our Creator. And when we choose to worship and praise someone or something else, there is dire consequences which comes to us in the form of wrath. Now notice with me Romans 1 verse 21. It says, For even though... They knew God. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks. And we took up the question, in what ways did they know God? Well, you have to start with what it says here. And according to the Apostle Paul, God had done enough in their hearts in order that they might honor Him and give Him thanks, even if it was a general knowledge. God had done enough. Now give me two illustrations to just kind of help you think and walk along that thought for just a little while. You know, it doesn't take a genius to be standing in his fields at work and look up to the heavens and ask a lot of great questions, starting with the question, why? You know, why does that sun rise up every day and give me the ability to where I can work in my fields and then it, every evening it, it goes down at night so I can go in and eat a bite, sit with my family and enjoy their company and then get some rest. And then the next day, here she comes again. And why in the world do I have enough mind about me to be able to figure out that I can plant these kernels of corn you know, in just a few months or, or six weeks later, I guess, corn sprouts up and then I can be able to go out here and pull these ears and take them into my family and we have something to eat. I mean, how did I know to do that? And how in the world am I able to provide food to my family just by working with my hands? And by the way, who gave me the strength to do these things? And how in the world is it that I have a wife? And by the miracle of God, we have procreated children. How in the world do these things happen? Why, is all, why do these things take place? Who am I? To be blessed in such a way. Surely there has to be a creator. Right? Do you have enough sense to do that? I think you have enough sense to do that. And I think you have enough sense to go, you know, I don't know where it comes from, but it's got to come from somebody and I just want to offer him thanks. Because I know it didn't come from me. Right? Well, the reason we don't do that, I'll explain when we get to Romans chapter 5, probably next year. But the reason for that is in there. There's enough to honor and give thanks to God even though we do not know Him personally. Let me give you another illustration. This one that's helpful in my mind and I'll probably look back in five years ago. That was a terrible illustration but maybe this will work this morning. Let's say a man owned a great company. Massive. Large number of employees. And among his employees was his son. His son worked for his dad. 
And long about Christmas, this man who owned this huge company, he was a very generous man, so he decided in his heart, you know, I'm going to give Christmas bonuses to everybody. And so he cuts a very generous check to every single solitary employee. And he says, yeah, I just want to bless you during Christmas. I just want to thank you for all you do for this country, I mean, for this company, rather. So I want to give you this. Well, a couple of days later, perhaps Sunday, the sun... And he and his family come over to his dad's place for dinner and they're sitting at the table. His son says, Dad, I really want to thank you for what you did. You know, things are tight and life doesn't work. We've got three kids and I get this check from you. And we're just going to be able to really enjoy our Christmas, Dad. I'm so thankful for you. You didn't have to do that, Dad. I know, son, but I just wanted to bless you. Let me ask you something. Is the son the only one in the company that can offer thanks to the man for what he's done? I mean, even if they don't know him, my, my illustrations go way back in time. So even if they just called him Sir, I had no idea what his first name was, right? Or perhaps they called him Mr. Smith. Had, had Mr. Smith done enough for his employees for them to go, you know what, I just want to thank you. I just want to honor you. My family was struggling. You know, certainly there's only one of them that knows him by name. There's only one of those employees that call him dad. And surely Thanksgiving can come from him. But is it too much to ask for the rest of the employees to say, Sir, I don't know, I don't know your name and I certainly don't call you dad. But listen, I recognize the fact that you've blessed me. And I just wanted to shake your hand and tell you thank you so much because we needed this. So when Paul says that he has made himself known to them through what he has done, there's enough there for us to honor and thank God, even though it's a general knowledge. There's enough there, but we don't do that. We don't offer God thanks. And, and God just does not sim simply sit there idly by and just let that go unnoticed. So notice, this is how God goes about the business of pouring out His wrath. Notice verse 21 again. Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but rather, watch what they've done. They've become futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. There's three things, three verbs. love verbs. Three things that have happened here. Number one, they became futile in their speculations. And this word futile in, it's pretty graphic. It means worthless. It means base. I translated ignorant. I don't think that's a stretch. And when you work, look at this word, speculations, it's dialogismos, where we get a word dialogue, by the way. So if you translate that, thoughts or opinions, even discussions, that's where we get the word dialogue into it. Discussions. And then you go back and read that. They became worthless, base, and ignorant in their thoughts, in their opinions, in their conversations. And let me give you another understanding behind that verb. It's in a passive voice. Meaning, you know who made them futile in their speculations and base in their opinions? God. And do you know, want to know why God did that to them? It's because they refused to honor Him and give Him thanks. Now we talk about this from time to time because to me it's the most senseless thing. But if we just think even medically about abortion... That's a human being with a heartbeat that's created at the point of conception. And it's an absolute miracle what takes place in a woman's body. I mean, we can define it, but it's really indescribable. But somehow we have the opinion today, even growing among professing Christians, and I'll always say professing Christians a month before that, we have the opinion today that that's somehow okay. And when you draw back and you look about that, you just remove yourself politically from that and you just consider that. You are, how can you think that way? How could you ever think 
that a person that is absolutely innocent, unable to defend themselves in, in any measure, how in the world could you create a scenario or a circumstance where it would be okay to take the life of something in someone like that? Are you stupid? Is what I think. But the answer to Scripture is, yeah, you are. Because God has made your opinions and your thoughts and your conversations utterly foolish. You're not even thinking anymore about what you're doing. In fact, look at verse 21, the second part there. Their hearts were darkened. Now, if you've been with us on Wednesday night, you know the heart is that part of the man that depicts the whole inner being of the man. So in regard to the whole inner man among us, he is very dark. Another verb, passive voice. Who's made him dark? God has. Why has God done that? Because they refuse to honor Him or give Him thanks. And so God has darkened their inner persons. In other words, if you're of the opinion that we live in a dark and messed up society, you'd be 100% right on. And how can people again be so dark and depraved because God has been refused the worship that is due Him? And then notice verse 22. Even though they consider themselves to be wise... But in reality, they have become fools. Another verb. Another passive. Who's made them fools? God has. Why has God made them fools? Because they've denied the worship that is due Him. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 20, he, he asks, and I, I take it rather sarcastically, where's the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Where is the man that can stand up with wisdom and reason? And then Paul says, Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? And the answer to that is, He most certainly has. He is taking every ounce of wisdom among men, and He's turned it upside down, and they are nothing but fools because they have denied God the worship that is due Him. You know, in regard to wisdom, we've been through this before. We know where true wisdom is found. In fact, we walked through Proverbs 4 for you men, and I was pretty hard on you, but Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the very beginning of knowledge. In other words, to ignore or reject God is to invite ignorance and stupidity into your life. Wisdom is a gift. It's not born with you. You don't get it through practical experience. You might get it if you're going to change a tire, but you don't get it if you need to make serious decisions in life. You don't get it that way. You get it as a gift from God, and you get it through seeking God in His Word. And if you reject that wisdom and turn to your own wisdom, God's like, that's just fine. I will more than willingly let you be a fool. And so fools we have become. So again, who was it that made their thoughts futile, their hearts darkened? And made them fools. And the answer to that is, God has. God has done this. Because we've abandoned God. And so God is like, then I'll abandon you. And so you and I live among a people, again today, that are ignorant, depraved of heart, and utterly fools. And because of that, our righteous souls are tormented day after day because this is the pouring out of the wrath of God. You know, Steve says that everything begins in life by being rightly oriented to God. Every problem, he says, we have begins with our relationship with God. If you have a problem at home, it starts with God. Everything flows out of that. And if you're humbly submitted to God and His Word, everything works itself out. Steve could not be more right about that. If we're rightly oriented to God, we walk in wisdom and things do work themselves out. And if not, everything else is thrown into chaos. But the world is not having it. And so in the wisdom of God, watch this, God's punishment for sin is sin. 
God allows sin and the experiences and consequences of it with all of its misery and violence and sorrow and sadness to be the punishment for it. Now I had you turn in your Bible, so go with me to Proverbs chapter 1. And I want to show you this written down. Some things I just like you to see, so this is one of those things. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 29. This is the wisdom of God. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 29. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof, so they shall eat of the fruit of their own way. They shall be satiated with their own desires. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. The punishment for, for sin is being satiated with sin and all the consequences and experiences of that sin. That's the wrath of God. As you're headed back to Romans, Jeremy did a great job last week in, in Judges 10. And he reminded us of the time where the people cried out for deliverance. But they had been worshiping the God of the Ammonites, right? They had turned away from God and they said, this is the God we want to worship. It's a little G and, and we created Him and we made Him, but we want to worship Him. We don't want to worship you. And so when they got themselves in the, the sorrow and the sadness and the experience and the consequences of doing what they had chosen to do, this is what God says to them. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. You want to worship that false god? That's just fine with me. You want to do this or that sin? That's just fine with me. If you want to experience that, I will let you experience that. But when we get to the other side of that, we're like, we don't want to experience this anymore. And it brings us to the point of repentance. This is the ways of God. And it's terrifying. For those of you who really understand the grace of God, you know the, the most terrifying thing in your life is for God to let you go in your sin. I beg Him often, please don't let me go the way Joey wants to go. Because I know where that will end. I will be a fool. Before myself, my family, and this church, I will be made a fool if God lets me go the way that I would want to go. And He's more than willing to do it to teach us a lesson. So when we say something like, this is what is going on in the world today, or something like this, you know, when we say something, what's wrong with you? Can you not see what you're saying? Can you not see what you're believing? Can you not see what you're doing? Can they? No, they can't. And it doesn't matter how loud you shout or how often you say it, they simply cannot see it apart from the grace of God. They think that they've found the answer to all their problems in their own foolishness. But it gets worse. Notice what they have done again. Look at verse 23. Not only did they refuse to honor Him and give Him thanks, but it gets worse in verse 23. Then they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of... And I want you to notice how the list gets lower and lower and lower to the ground. In the form of corruptible man and of birds and then four-footed animals who walk and then crawling creatures who go about on their belly. In other words, we've taken the glory of God and we keep bringing it further and further and further and further down. We keep pushing God's glory further and further down. And then notice verse 25. For they have exchanged, he goes on, for they have exchanged the truth of the God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Rather than seeking the God who is, they've exchanged Him for another. Now, I said this last week, we think America doesn't have their little G gods and we're not idol worshippers. That's wrong. 
we're perhaps the worst among all idol worshipers. Because if you'll notice the text back up in verse 23, we've exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of what? Corruptible man. You know who our idol is? Ourselves. You know where we look for the answer of all of our problems? Ourselves. You know whose wisdom we trust in? Ourselves. You know who we glory in? Ourselves. You know who our God is? Ourselves. Now certainly there are other nations, you know, we've talked about this, we've been to Burma and Myanmar, where they take wood or they take some gold or silver or, or stone even and they form it down to that little Buddha doll, that little fat ball headed guy. And they get on the ground on all fours and put their elbows down and they cry and they, they pray to that little idol that they've made with their own hands. And you want to shout, what's wrong with you? And they throw water on it. That's the forgiveness of sin. They throw in water on this little thing that they either made it or they bought it. And you're like, are you kidding me? But we're not far from that. We didn't make our God with our hands. We made our God with our minds. And we formed it after our own image. Rather than realizing that we've been created after the image of God, we've recreated God in our own image. And so we are idol worshippers as well. So whether their hands have made it, their minds have invented it, or invented it, or both, they've altogether rejected the God who has made Himself known to all. Now, for those of you in Christ, you know that those things that I just described are unnatural. They're weird. They're talking about bowing down to a Buddha. My first thought was, man, this. I just. It. It was weird. I don't know how else to explain it. I was seeing people crying, laying everywhere in front of that statue of that little bald-headed dude. And I said, this, 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 is, this is not normal. This is unnatural, right? You realize how unnerving and upsetting and unfitting and unnatural all of this is, and you realize that it, it has to violate the natural order of God. Let me pause here because I did jot something in my notes that I, I don't want to pass up. For those, especially you men who are in Christ, you, you know well, there's no better feeling in your soul than when you're walking rightly before God. When your life is submitted to Him, you worship Him privately, you lead your family in worship. Yet your steps are light. There's joy in your heart. There's a smile on your face. It just feels good to you. And then every now and then we get a little sideways, don't we, man? We think, ah, I'm thinking this might please me as well, knowing full well it's wrong. And then you, you get over there and you do that thing and you're riddled with guilt by the grace of God and the conviction by the Spirit of God. And you go, this feels horrible. And then you repent and you get back over here and you go, now this feels natural and right. We know what that feels like, right? But they don't. And so they walk in what is unnatural and they walk in what is unnormal. And so notice God's response to what they do. Look in verse 24. Therefore, since they do this unnatural, unnormal worship of idols, therefore God gives them over to the lust of their own heart, to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. More explanation, more detail, verse 26. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchange the natural function for what is not natural. And in the same way also the men abandon the natural function of the woman. And they burn in their desire toward one another, men with men. Committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. In other words, because they have denied God... Because rather than worshiping the God who created them, which would be very natural for them since they were made in His own image, they've instead worshiped idols. And so since they have done what is not natural to God, God has given them over to what is not natural for them. And He's allowed them to dishonor their own body with degrading passions. What is the text talking about? Homosexuality. Do you know why 
we have homosexuality in the world? You know why homosexuality is so prevalent in our own country? It's because idolatry is so prevalent in our own country. It is God's wrath poured out on us because we have refused Him the worship that is due Him. You know, we're not the first to invent that. I talked about the fall of Rome earlier. Homosexuality, even according to Roman historians, was rampant. William Barclay, he's actually a Scottish guy. I think he was around in the early 1800s. But anyway, through his research, he found out that 14 out of the first 15 Roman emperors were practicing homosexuals. Suetonius, who was the Roman historian who wrote in the year 69, said this about Julius Caesar, the first Caesar that they had. Julius was every woman's man. Sounds pretty good. And every man's woman. An unbelieving Roman historian wrote that in the year 69 about his leader. And it's absolutely morally disgusting. That's what was going on in Rome in the days of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what was going on in Rome when Paul wrote this letter. And he says, let me tell you why you're tortured in your righteous soul about all this wickedness and godless is going on. It's going on because they refuse me the worship that is due me. And they, ser- they worship and serve what is unnatural. They worship things that they've made with their hands. And so I'll let them go into the realm of the unnatural. And I'll let them have very unnatural physical relationships with one another. And I could add the mind into this, right? What a world, man. And then we've got all these people running around trying to convince, especially the church. They're wanting the church to say this is okay. So if we just take Romans 1 and we understand homosexuality is the wrath of God being poured out in a nation, and I want you to say that's okay. I want you to say that God accepts willingly His own wrath being poured out. Anyway, wait a minute. Two statements can't be more contradictory. And you'd be exactly right. I told you when we went up to Maine, Abby wanted to go to Maine for a senior trip. And I think we were in Portland, Maine, driving down one road. And for some reason, they put all these churches on both sides of the road, every denomination, all the way down this road. And almost in every single one of the front yards of those churches was the flag that was promoting homosexuality. They were supporting it and they were accepting it. You see, I'll take you back to my original statement. We have a dire responsibility as a people of God to stand firmly on the Word of God. And we need not care who says what about us or who rejects us. These are not my opinions. This is the grammatical flow of Scripture in Romans 1. This is the judgment of God. And I'll I'll take you one verse while I'm here. You go from the culture saying this is good to now a great number of quote-unquote churches saying this is good. Now we have parents saying this is good. We have parents who are affirming their kids in the wrath of God. you understand that? I told the firefighters this this morning. I said, can you imagine you're, you're trying to put out a fire in a home and a parent standing there with her small child and they're saying, listen, son, I know you want to run in there and check it out. Just go ahead. It'll be fine. Just run right in that fire. You won't be harmed. Just go see what it's like because I bet it's fascinating in there seeing that house burn down. I said, you as a firefighter be screaming at the top of your lungs. What is wrong with you? They'll die. And so in a very like manner, you have parents allowing their children to go along with this homosexuality. Go, You're fine. Hey, God will accept you in these things. And they haven't a clue that they're, they're affirming their children in the judgment of God. And it is, it is mortifying. It's terrifying to what we see taking place in our country today. The world knows it's wrong. You know, 30 years ago, when I was growing up, you hid. It was a shameful thing. Do you know why they hid? They didn't hide because it just wasn't time to come out of the closet. They hid because they knew in their hearts it was wrong. You didn't talk about it. It was shameful. 
Is there anything, anything shameful or hidden in saying, hey, you know, my son's found a girl, and they're going to get married. That's a great thing to celebrate. I want all of you to come. But if you change that story just a little bit, it's a shameful thing. I don't want any of you to come. In fact, I don't want any of you to know. That's how we did 30 years ago. We're just going to hide this thing as a family. We're not going to talk about it because it's written in their own heart that there's something about this that's not right. And that's simply the truth of Scripture. But now, huh, what was once shameful is normalized and celebrated. Again, parents bless their children to walk about this path. They support them in the judgment of God. It's absolutely terrifying. It's absolutely terrible. But you know, there's a greater concern for us because there are those who have hidden themselves among us, not Corinth, but us as a church. And Jude talks about how they've hidden themselves among us. There are those within the church who promote these things as well. And as I said earlier, they say that they're okay. In other words, they say that the judgment of God is perfectly acceptable in the love of God. And that's why I wanted you to go to 2 Peter, because I want you to see this. Go with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. I don't like very much this morning. I'll cover the rest very quickly. And as I read, I'll describe it for you. 2 Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to start in verse 1. The Word of God says, But false prophets arose among them, or arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift judgment and destruction upon themselves. In other words, not waiting until the day of Christ. It's an immediate sort of thing. Notice the response of the church, because he's speaking to the church. Many will follow their sensuality. Now that's interesting. He's talking about false teachers preaching false things, and he says many will follow their sensuality. In fact, the word is azogeia, which literally means way out of bounds. It has sexual connotations, but it also points to the fact of or, or the reality of a lack of self-constraint. So he says, there's going to be teachers among you who's going to introduce destructive heresies, and many will follow their azogeia, and that's why, well, that's why they translate it sensuality, because it's sexual false teaching. It's immoral false teaching. It goes on to what he says, notice, when men will follow their sensuality, and because of them, notice, the way of the truth will be maligned. It corrupts the very truth that we proclaim if we go along with their false teaching. In other words, we've abandoned truth. It goes on in verse 3, In their greed they'll exploit you with their false words, and their judgment for long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, in Genesis 6, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness, down to verse 6, get verse 5, And if He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having them as an example to those who live ungodly lives after them, verse 7, and if you rescued righteous lot, oppressed by the, here's that word again, azogeia, a sensual conduct of a principled men, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who indulge the flesh, sexual context, in its corrupt desires and hate or despise authority. In other words, we're living in the Old Testament again. Not only does the world hate God, but now the church hates God. Because the Word of God runs contrary to their God. Because their God accepts all of these things. So, again, what is the direct cause of homosexuality? Idolatry. It's idolatry. So... Notice all that they have done. They did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. Notice with me verse 28. Let's take one step further and I'll run through this more quickly for you. Verse 28. They did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. So they refused Him honor and thanks. They've exchanged Him for an idol. And now they refuse to acknowledge Him 
all together. And so the second part of 28 is God's response to this. God gave them over. God's doing this, you realize. To a depraved mind. To do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of, or, yeah, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Where did all that come from? From the hand of God. Because they refused to acknowledge God. And so when we see all this stuff going on, these things that are unexplained, unreasonable, unimaginable, evil without rhyme or reason, why the wrath of God is being poured out on you as a people. It's not coming. It's here. So when we see one of these dudes walk in with a gun and do what they do and kill all these innocent people, and you begin to ask, why? Son, have you thought about this? They're going to write your name in history as a despised and hated person. They're going to try to prosecute your parents and hold them accountable for what you've done. You're never going to be famous. They're going to ridicule you and malign your name for the rest of the history of man. Why are you doing this? And he can't give you a reasonable answer. He has no clue. He's consumed with evil. He's absolutely consumed with evil. And again, the reason for that is because of the wrath of God being poured out. And then finally, we come to the end morally. Notice with me verse 32. Although they know the ordinance. ESV translated righteous decree. I, I, I like that better. What's, there's a particular righteous decree that they know. Although they know the singular specific ordinance of God. And here it is. That those who practice such things are worthy of what? Death. I know what I'm doing deserves death. And I don't care. And the reason that they don't care is because they think that God hasn't done anything to them yet. In fact, they're trying to convince their own heart that God doesn't even exist and I'll never be held accountable before God. But they know in their heart what I'm doing is wrong and worthy of death. But look what they do. It goes further. They not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. They encourage them and they celebrate with them as they practice their evil ways. And by the way, we're there. We're all the way to the end. You can draw encouragement from everyone and anyone all the way up to the top for you to practice evil. For you to take the life of an innocent, they'll do anything to make sure you can do that. To be a homosexual, for homosexuals to adopt children and have their own family, They'll make sure you're able to do that because they want to approve you in your evil way. You know, these times, let me turn it back to you and we're done. The times and the places that God has chosen for you to be a young family is difficult. And that's an understatement. But you have been given the God-ordained task of raising a godly family in the midst of a culture that swims in the muck and mire of degraded passions and depraved minds. And in a small and maybe weird way, but this is a joy way, that's a blessing. Because it's easy to be godly when the nation is godly. But it's really hard to be godly when no one else around you is godly. And you have the Spirit of God and hopefully enough fire in your belly to get excited about the opportunity that you have to stand on the Word of God and say, no, that right there, that's wrong. Me and my family, we will worship the Lord. So how do you raise a family in the midst of a culture that's under the judgment of God? Well, may God bless you. But you better make certain that your family is submitted to the worship of God and the obedience of the Word of God or you're going to get swept away in the rising floodwaters of the wrath of God. That I can be certain. Last thing, let me give you just an ounce of hope. I don't usually leave you with hope, but let me give you a little bit of hope. I told you there were three verbs in here, and I told them this, I think, on a Sunday night. There's three verbs in here. 
God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. God's doing it, and further and further down the hill they fall. But Greek has a verb tense that English doesn't have, and it's pretty cool when it's the aorist tense. It has no respect of time. It just simply wants to point you to the action. In action, God gave them over. But the, the great thing about the aorist tense is it can be changed. It's not, it's not permanent. It's not fixed. God did an action and He can undo that action. And with repentance and faith, God wipes it all away. And He restores you to a right relationship with Him. As we walk through these days ahead, and I prayed that this morning, if there's one word that describes us, let the word repentant describe who we are. Let us go from one moment of repentance to the next, knowing that God's way is right. And through repentance and trust, we will get our lives right. And we will walk in a way that pleases our Father. Let's pray.